You're listening to Booth One with your hosts, Gary Zabinski and the always lovable and, may I dare say, glistening Roscoe. It's the dog days of summer and the temperature outside is almost 100 degrees and, and you don't sweat. You don't perspire. You glisten. I'm, am I glistening today? <laughs> I think we all are. How are you surviving this national heat wave, Roscoe? Not well. As I was, was walking to the train station today, I thought I should have my phone in my hand because I was sure I was just going to keel over on the sidewalk. And as I went down, I wanted to be able to call 911 and say, please rescue the large man. Do you have 911 on speed dial? I should. <laughs> I think you might as well. Today's episode is entitled Roscoe at Large. I got my own episode? And we're going to get his take on several Booth One cultural experiences he's had since we last published. We also have a very special treat. We have an excerpt from a live recording we did at Writer's Theater recently for something called their Sunday Spotlight. It's like a pre-show, post-show lecture series where they get somebody in to talk about the thing that's going on, like they had a, a Holocaust expert when they were doing the Diary of Anne Frank. Anyway, they asked us to do their Sunday Spotlight for company. We gave a presentation about Stephen Sondheim and more specifically about company, which Writers is currently presenting in an updated modern production directed by William Brown, a musical direction by Tom Vendafredo. Of course, the artistic director is the wonderful Michael Halberstam, who, if you're interested in finding out more about him, tune into episode 23, where I did an extended interview with Michael. But first, let's get to Roscoe's at-large events. I'm going to get right to the meat of the matter, because here is what I want to know. You saw Patti LuPone and Christine Ebersole here in Chicago in their new musical, War Paint. What did you think? I think it was an A production of what is now a C-plus script and score. Really? Let me set this up. It's a new musical. It's the world premiere. It's at the Goodman Theater. Inexplicably, tickets are $185 <laughs> they are, to sit they are on the main floor. They are very expensive. But because I am booth one, I was able to get into the show spending less than $185. Good which, for you. Which made me happy. And the show is about the ongoing rivalry between Helena Rubinstein and Elizabeth Arden. Uh, Both who, of famous cosmetic world. Right. After the First World War, when cosmetics were becoming popular and the idea of skincare and ointments and liniments to make you look eternally youthful. Actually, I, I didn't know this. They would grind freshwater pearls and mix them in with lipstick. And that's why you had glossy lips, wow. op opalescent lips. You learned this from the show? I learned that from the show because the FDA had to investigate them because they were also using arsenic and mercury in some of their products. And old lace. <laughs> and old lace, which is not a good thing to put on your mouth. Patty Lupone, Christine Ebersole, the creative team is the same creative team that did Grey Gardens. The book, the music, the score, the director. Grey Gardens was one of the great theater-going experiences of my life. This is about two women who run cosmetic businesses and they don't know each other and they don't like each other. And according to this script, they never meet until very late in their life. So you have a problem when you're going to create a, a play that's about the two of them, yet they can never be on stage together. Well, they can't or, be or in they the can same be, scene. They can't be in the same scene. So lots of split scenes. 
And a, a lot of time I'm, I'm watching the show and thinking, well, they just gave Patty a great 10 minutes, so this has to be followed by Christine having a great 10 minutes. Then Patty will have a five-minute song, and then Christine will have a five-minute song. So they seem to have gone to great lengths to even everything out. So how interesting can this be? You know, how high are the stakes? They, they go out of business, they become friends. What? I mean, you know, what, what's at risk here when you're making a play about two rich women who don't like each other? Well, let me read you a couple of things from some of the reviews that came out. Ben Brantley with the New York Times was sent from New York to review the show. And his opening sentences for a musical that covers so many years and so many shades of lipstick, Warpaint never really seems to move forward. It doesn't just show its whole hand from the get-go. It does so as eagerly as a debutante with a fabulous new manicure. <laughs> it's really quite a well-written review. Would you agree with that assessment? I, I did agree. you Did you kind of know where this was going from the beginning 10 minutes? Yes. I sort of, I, you sort of know where it's headed, but I have to say, you know, it's dazzling. It's a Broadway-caliber production. This is a very expensive, elaborate production. You're watching two great stars. Who are bigger Broadway stars right now than Petty Lupone and Christina Rosal? Well, very few. And they're in the, the prime and the peak of their talents. <laughs> well, Petty Lupone is something of a parody of herself because she, she's often been known to sort of slur her words and her, her enunciation and diction are not great. And, and she's playing the, the Polish-born Helena Rubinstein with an accent throughout the show, correct? And at some points I thought, is she, is she even speaking English? Is this section in Polish? <laughs> I, I can't tell. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's very exaggerated. But her voice, she's 67 years old. Her voice shows no sign of wear or tear. Uh, maybe it's deepened, and but I don't think so. And at one point, I thought, I, I think these two women could do anything they wanted their voices to do. Some powerhouse vocals, nothing terribly interesting. Christine Ebersol has the best, best number in the show, which is her, her 11 o'clock number called Pink. Yes, I, I've read that. In fact, there's the, the show is big enough for two 11 o'clock numbers, yes. in fact, right? Yes. So 11 and 11.10. I got a little bored and a little restless, and I think it has a great final 15 minutes. The audiences always remember the end of the show. And so finally it, it bursts into a big Broadway musical in the last 15 minutes, and then they have a, a protracted scene together. Yeah, Ben Bradley calls them sisters in suffering. <laughs> which I thought was very good. Uh, and it, and uh, he says that it takes them two and a half more hours from the opening of symmetrical scenes usually played in direct cross-cutting counterpoint to confess their bond to each other. The show's rhythms can be boiled down to this. They're totally different. No, they're totally alike. <laughs> yes, they both want the same things. No, no, they're both completely in their own separate worlds and they don't like each other. And you say they never... In real life, as far as anybody knows, they never met each other. Until the very end, when they were both at, um, they were both going to be honored in New York, and they didn't know the other one was going to be there. And they are unhappily surprised to run into each other in the green room. He says of the performers that Miss Lupone, an idiosyncratic belter, as you kind of pointed out, uh, wrestles melodies to the mat in freestyle. <laughs> she, she does know how to take a song and wrestle it uh, face down and pin it yes. to the mat, while Miss Ebersole is a sparkling precisionist, which I'm not sure exactly what, I, what, what that's that supposed mean? to mean. 
Chris Jones in the Chicago Tribune says that war paint, the intriguingly juicy and glorious, if over binary and yet underwritten new musical at the Goodman Theater, is all about the major generals. I, I think it's sort of a trivial story. I mean, Grey Gardens was such a moving and profound and unusual piece that this just seems lightweight and unimportant. I will say also one of my favorite topics that I always bring up, the size of the theater. Boy, how nice to be in Chicago and see a Broadway production in a small theater where it seems very big on that stage. Their, their voices raise the rafters. Yeah. And the, I would say the, you know, the audience loved it. The audience was thrilled. And, I, and again, I think they're probably won over in the last 10 or 15 minutes of the show. Hedy Weiss in the Chicago Sun-Times liked the show a bit more and said, rest assured, this is a musical whose beauty is far more than skin deep with its many layers accruing gradually but confidently. And I will also say I'm seeing the show again in about a week. I think it would be interesting to go back. When will Patti LuPone preview at 67? How many more shows is she going to open in Chicago in her career? Would you call this essentially a pre-Broadway tryout? Well, I think it's only a pre-Broadway tryout if you know they're really going to Broadway and they have a theater booked. I'm not sure they do. But I'm it's, not sure it's Patti it's LuPone funded. and Christine Ebersole and, and the writers of Grey Gardens. Wink, 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 wink. wink you yeah. know, I mean, what what do they think? The it's not going to have be, a life yes. beyond the Goodman. It's a little odd that it wasn't at one of the larger theaters like the Cadillac Palace. What well, is it? Thank the God. Schubert Theater where <laughs> where things have come to try out before right. moving to Broadway. Big, big yes, musicals. Spun, spun, what's it called? SpongeBob SquarePants? Spun, <laughs> SpongeBob SquarePants was... SpongeBob Square. <laughs> you can tell I have children. <laughs> Sponge job. Am I SpongeBob? SpongeBob SquarePants <laughs> was hogging up the Oriental Theater this summer. Early yes, this directed summer. by Tina Landau. Mm. I, I don't. It seems an odd project for her. She has some pedigree with doing Broadway musicals, but this being so kid centric. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how she got involved in the project, but I hear it's terrific. Mm. And if you're of a certain age, uh, you'll just go gaga for it. Yes. Everything, <laughs> everything you could imagine, could be put on stage about SpongeBob SquarePants <laughs> is is on stage, and they don't miss a trick. And so if you we'll grew call up, this booth one the illiterate edition, <laughs> in which we can't wrap our our lips around. We're any only words. one letter off. We're only one letter off. Yes. It's very well, you close. know, when I was you were talking about how it's odd it is that Tina Landau directed this. When I was doing some research on Company, I I happened to read about the fact that. When Irene was revived on Broadway in 1973 with Debbie Reynolds, it was inexplicably directed by Sir John Gailgood. Gailgood? Really? Yeah. The, the brilliant, classically trained Shakespearean actor who had no business directing a 1920s musical. Wow. And then he didn't know what he was doing, so they had to bring in um, Gower Champion. Do you feel that this, um, with a little bit of work on the things that you think are, are, give it, what did you give it, a C plus? I said it's a C plus. Do you think with given some work on the score and the, and the script and the structure that this will have Broadway potential? I don't know. I mean, I just, I don't think you're ever going to make the, the story more interesting than it is. Is it big enough for a Broadway musical? I, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a small Broadway musical. It looked good on that stage. Mm-hmm. But, you know, these the two women, there's no dancing with the two leads, of course, yeah. the choreography. Yeah. 
Um, so it's a lot of the shop girls who have the big chorus numbers. Well, you've, you've described it pretty well for our listeners, and I, I think that it's selling extremely well here. I'm not sure if you can even get a ticket. You, you heard it from Roscoe's voice yeah. right here. I would say it's thrilling to see them, and I will be thrilled to see them again. It's probably 10 years since I've seen Grey Gardens. Gypsy was the last big musical Petty LuPone did, and that's in, yeah. 10 years ago now. Yeah. So see these things and these performers while you can. They won't be around forever. Speaking of sparkling female performers, let's move on to your next Booth One experience you've had in the last week or so. You saw the fabulous Andrea Marcovici at Davenport's recently. Uh, you've seen her before. You've seen her a number of times. I want to know what your assessment is at this age in her career. Oh, boy. Cut to the chase, Scary. Uh, How was your evening? I was nervous. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing like... This was a... It was at Davenport's, which is an out-of-the-way nightclub in mm-hmm. the Wicker Park area. So it's you know, a $20 cab ride and a $40 cover, and every Coca-Cola is $8, and it's $20 to get home, and it's $20 to tip the waiter. It, it's no Cafe Carlisle, but it's an it's, expensive yeah, evening. Yeah, it's an expensive... You know, I'm, I'm shelling out $120 for essentially 75 minutes of entertainment. Mm-hmm. Here's the deal with Andrea Marcovici. She is in been in vocal distress for a number of years now. Her, her voice is degraded significantly. And it, it's interesting, she's exactly the same age as Patti LuPone. They're both 67. And Andrea Marcovici was a headliner. She played every holiday season for 25 years in a row at the Oak Room at the Algonquin Hotel, where Variety said, wrote about her one year, that she's the epitome of elegance, <laughs> which is true. And she is a very smart, polished, intellectual woman. She, she puts together a 75-minute act, and she would devote it to, uh, always devoted to different themes or different composers, very carefully crafted, always very interesting, full of story. Even, even if you thought you knew the composer, she would say, well, I'm going to sing a song for you with lyrics by Dorothy Fields that you've never heard before, because last week Dorothy Fields' son came in to see me, and he brought me these lyrics and said, there's something my mother wrote which has never been published or performed and I'd like you to have it. So there was always a sense of surprise about seeing Andrea Marcovici. And, you know, she didn't have the biggest voice in the world, but it was a a pleasant sounding voice, great musicality. Many of the notes are not there anymore. So for me, it was fascinating. The high ones or the low ones? The high ones. Some of them, you know, this happens with some singers where they lose the middle range Mm. and they can do something to sing in their head voice and get out some high notes. And then their their lower tones be, sometimes become more robust. And she knows that, of course. To just, so to see what she has to do technically and interpretively to try to sing around the damage in her voice or to know I'm going to sound a little rough and rugged through part of the song, but I can hit this note at the very end of the song. And if I hit it just right and my breathing is right, I'm going to be able to hold it for for a full 20 seconds or 30 seconds. And people are going to go, wow, what a voice. So it was thrilling to see her. I hadn't seen her in many, many years. And I we talk about this all the time. I worked with her on at least one or two occasions. Where yes, she you've mentioned. Worked in a nightclub where I ran. And so I would see the same act. So I hadn't seen her in a long time. And it was thrilling to see her. But 
the frailty of her voice made me nervous. I never could fully relax because you didn't know it was like going to a Liza Minnelli concert. You but didn't she's know. a real pro, and 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 she whatever the quality of her vocal um, abilities is now at her age um, and after so many years. She still knows how to work the room and work her voice to a place where you found her to be still pretty ha- she still pretty much has it. Are you saying that? No, I'm saying she doesn't have it. Really? She she can sing around the damage in her voice, but she's clearly in distress and it's it's clearly a lot of work to get through the show. Ah. Uh, and that made me nervous. I mean, if she still had a lovely beautiful voice and could belt out one beautiful song after another, it would be thrilling, but she can't do that at this point. So you were on edge. I was on edge. I was on a nervous, I was a nervous wreck. And um, there were 28 people in the house. Oh. You know, this is a woman who used to, once sold out Carnegie Hall. Yeah. And then you couldn't get in to see her at the Oak Room. She'd, she'd do two shows a night for six weeks and you couldn't get in. And there were 28 people there. There were 40 the next night. Did you get to speak to her after the show? I did. She was gracious and nice and, and claimed that she remembered me. I'm not sure that she actually did. It had been a long time. And she lives in, she lives in California, which I didn't know. She was almost a movie star. She was almost a TV star. She was almost a uh, Broadway star. And one of her last efforts to do a big Broadway musical was a musical called Chaplin, about Charlie Chaplin. Oh, sure. Written by um, Anthony Newley. Anthony Newley. And, and starring Anthony Newley. And it started in Los Angeles. And she played, what they finally decided to do is she plays all of his wives. She played three different roles in the show. And apparently the show was a disaster. And they got more money and more talent. And they worked on the show and worked on the show. It got in much better shape. They invited the critics to come back in Los Angeles. It got better reviews. They were literally getting ready to fly to New York to start New York rehearsals. And... There was a child who played Chaplin as a child. So this woman pulled him out of school, rented out her apartment, released an apartment in New York. Every, everyone is, has given up other shows. They all go to New York, and the show's pulled, and it never happens. And they just could never get the money again, and, and they tried for a while to try to rescue it, and then they just gave up. Mm. So it was heartbreaking, and that was something that she did. And I remember year, years ago, there was another Broadway-bound music with her, Nefertiti, <laughs> which, which opened at the Blackstone Theater, also to terrible reviews and closed. Oh, oh, dear so me. So that, that was my adventure with Andrea Marcovici. I'm going to digress just for a minute here. Speaking of California, I've just got to run through this, this list really quickly. In, in 2015, shark activities hit an all-time high in the United States with 59 unprovoked attacks. 59 unprovoked attacks. Do you know what the top 10 states for shark attacks are? And um, then you can decide where you want to go on vacation. Florida, California, Hawaii. Florida, California, and Hawaii are the top three. And I would guess Illinois, Lake Michigan, the beach right <laughs> outside your house, is probably number four. Number 11. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Florida is the number one state for unprovoked attacks. The International Shark Attack File, there is such an organization called the ISAF, says although unprovoked shark attacks are rare, high-contrast apparel like bright yellow is more likely to draw the animals. So you might not you might not want to wear that bright yellow uh, speedo the speedo. next time I'm in the ocean. <laughs> speedo and water wings that you usually go yes. swimming in. If you encounter a shark, and this is 
I think people, I'm going to wait for people to go get a pen and a pencil and a piece of paper so they can write this down. If you should encounter a shark in the wild, hitting it on the nose with a fist or inanimate object, I don't know what else you would have. A wrench could curtail an attack. If it bites, the ISAF recommends clawing at its eyes and gill openings, which are two sensitive areas. Sharks, by the way, respect both power and size. And, and they don't, being, they don't like being. the taste of human beings, but they don't know that until after they've bitten <laughs> into you Whoops. and tasted you. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, yuck. Well, uh, yeah, apparently not. The other states that are on the list, uh, number 10 is New York. Number uh, 9 is Georgia. Big coastline there. Makes sense. Number 8 is New Jersey. Number 7, this, this chagrined me a lot because I love this state and I'd love to go retire there someday. Oregon. Oregon, Pacific Pacific Sharks, 26 unprovoked attacks in, in Oregon. Uh, number six is Texas. Uh, number five and number four are North Carolina and South Carolina, respectively. And as you so brilliantly said, California, Hawaii, and Florida. Florida with 748 attacks. Now you can plan your vacation in, in, in safety. You, you know where to go. I'm, I'm probably never going into the ocean again. After after this, let's get back to one other uh, experience you had this week. You mentioned something to me on a conversation we were having earlier in the week. And I just want to ask you about this show that you saw that's been playing here in Chicago now for um, a month or a little bit more than a month. And it's on its national tour and probably the last national tour. You went to see Book of Mormon. I did. The Book of Mormon. Um, You've seen the show before. I had a very sour experience the first time I saw the show on Broadway. The show had just opened. It was immediately a huge hit, and it was impossible to get tickets. The ticket I was able to get was in the front row, all the way on the right aisle of the theater. It was at the Eugene O'Neill, which has a curved seating area. So I was actually sitting in front of the conductor. The conductor was behind me. So when the actors are in a line on stage, they were standing about parallel with my seat. And you had to look so, behind you so to I see had the to, conductor? I would have to look behind me to see the conductor cool. and to my side to see the actors. It, this was not sold as a partial view seat. I missed so much of the show. It was so miserable because I'm here at this big, hot, hit show and I can't see it. It took me half of the show to calm down. And I remembered this today as I was traveling up here to tape this that during the intermission, I was complaining to the woman next to me about the sight lines we were enduring. And her final response to me was, we're lucky to even be in this theater, so stop complaining and just try to enjoy the show. Because it was such a massive hit, it was hard to get yeah, tickets just, at that the point. The woman was like, stop raining on my parade and pointing at everything that's wrong right. with where we're sitting. I'm thrilled to be at the big hit show on Broadway this year, and you're, you know, Sour Smithers yes. over here complaining yes, about you've it. You've never been accused of that before. <laughs> yes. You know, I, I suffer from codependency, which means that I can't have a good time if I think other people aren't having a good time. And, you know, I'm not a prude, but boy, there's a lot of vileness and filthiness and profanity in Book of Mormon. You know, they, they yeah. push it as far as you can possibly sure. go. And the first time I saw the show, that made me a nervous wreck. You know, they're teenagers and people with children sitting around me and thinking, did these families know what they were getting into? It's kind of funny how I came to see this recently. It was another night of being at loose ends. And I happened to be within a block of the theater. And I thought... 
you know, I have nothing better to do. And I think it, it was already then 110 degrees because my other alternative was to go to Grant Park and hear the symphony at the Pritzker. Uh, but it was hot. So I walked by the Bank One private bank. What's it called? It's bank? called the Private Bank Theater. The Private now. Bank Theater, formerly the Schubert. So it I, sounds like some place where Donald Trump would keep his money. <laughs> yes. Wait, wait, this is a private bank. You it's can't come in bank. here. It's Get just out. for billionaires. Get out. Get out. So I sauntered up to the box office and I said, I said, silly question. Probably no. Is, is there a lottery? Is there last minute? And she said, not at this point. She goes, what I can do is I can get you partial view for $25. And I said, well, what does partial view mean? And she goes, you're in row V. So you're about 25 rows back. So I continued to yak, and I realized there's no one around. And I said, well, what, where, where are people? I said, is this a 7.30 curtain tonight? And she said, yes. And I said, well, what time is it now? And she said, it's 7.31. <laughs> and I turned, and I realized that there were 10 hysterical people behind me who were trying to pick up their tickets <laughs> but, and were running late. And I'm, you know, like, you know. Who's the big man who at the box <laughs> yes. office window? Could you tell Clem Cadiddlehopper to make up his mind whether he's going to shell out $25? Hey, pal, while we're young. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> so here's, here was my take on Book of Mormon the second time. Gee, it was so nice to actually finally see the show this time. This is the third time Book of Mormon's been in Chicago. One of the leads is played by a young actor named Cody Jameson Strand, who is 27, basically graduated from college, went to New York, auditioned for this the next day, got it, and has done the Book of Mormon on Broadway and in two other tours. Fantastic. Very eccentric. What's going to happen four is... Four more weeks they have. It's four more weeks, and then that theater is going to be taken over by Hamilton, which will then run for the rest of our lives. Yes, probably. And no other play will ever yes. play there. It'll yeah. be like the Blue Man Group at the Briar. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm up for the Aaron Burr role, <laughs> which they haven't cast yet. Really? I, I have my fingers crossed. Wow. Yeah. That would be fantastic. My agent hasn't called yet, but I'm oh. just sort of waiting with bated that would breath. Be, that's, they, that's cast an, an aging white man and yes. sort of a shocking casting decision. I want to be in the room where it happens. <laughs> <laughs> that, would be, that would be me. That would be thrilling. I think you'd probably <laughs> sing better than that. Uh, maybe, maybe so. But, but a couple of things in the show. This just shows you how the news and world events can affect things very quickly. There are a lot of references at the beginning of the show. One of the Mormon elders, his dream and fantasy is to go to Orlando, the Magic Kingdom. So a lot of references to Orlando, and you could actually hear the audience shudder a little. You know, it's not funny. A lot of guns on stage, a lot of black and white issues that, you know, it's never racist or offensive, but gee, it's uncomfortable given the events of this summer. You could feel the audience sort of you, you not, feel breathe, the audience. not breathing, right? Yeah, you you, can, I could, I you could can sense, sense them pulling yeah. back a little. And there would be some people, you know, there'd be a, a line about Orlando, and you'd hear five people in the audience go, ah! and 2,000 people kind of squinch up and be nervous. Oh, mm. So I thought that was interesting. And another, you know, it's always about my encounters with the audience. I had two empty seats next to me, and then there were three women together, and they seemed to have to discuss everything that was happening on stage. <laughs> Why and, does this and, always happen and, to and you? And I thought, maybe I'm overreacting. And then again, when a number ended and they started talking, a woman in front of them turned around to look at them. And I leaned over and I, I have a very soft voice. Yes, and I'm not, demure. Not very, intimidating no, no, at all. No. And so I leaned over and I said, stop talking. 
Well, I think they left wet seats. <laughs> wet spots in their seats. I think they left wet seats. I can't talk today. I scared the hell out of these women, and I felt sort of guilty about it. But I'm not sure they so much as laughed for the next two hours. The other horrible thing about the Bank One, Charter One, Booth One... Private Bank. Private Bank Theater <laughs> is that there are a number of poles. I think there's four big columns on the main floor. Yeah, on the main floor. And, and they literally were seating people behind these poles. And so about 10 minutes into the show, a woman gets up and, and moves to an empty seat behind me. And then I start talking to her during the intermission. She said, I, I paid $140 for my seat and I'm sitting behind a pole. And she goes, I can finally see over here. So we started chatting and her favorite musical is Rodgers and Hammerstein's Man of La Mancha. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Which I didn't have the nerve to tell her with wasn't by Rogers and Hammerstein. But yeah, she, you know, yeah. I listened to the tape of that in my car all the time when I was a little girl. Interesting. And yeah. Interesting. So she was having a good time. Just my final thought on the Book of Mormon. One of the things that always makes comedy less comedic is when things are predictable. And there are many times when a when a section of the show starts or a musical number, I know exactly where it's headed. I've gotten the joke. You don't need to keep singing about it for four minutes. Got the joke, got the laugh, move on. Is that something that has evolved since that show opened? Because people were not having that kind of commentary or criticism of the show back in. I, 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 this is why you have to see it, because either I'm, I'm overstating it or I'm a sourpuss. But I think maybe the show is just a little bit overrated or a lot overrated. All right, I'm going to try to go see it. And then next time we speak, $25. The next time we speak, we can compare some notes. Okay. Thanks for those reports on your activities. I'm I'm happy that you've been out and about and at large, at last. At large, Roscoe at large, at last. Well, let's get to our Sunday spotlight segment that I I promised uh, our listeners we would do and, and give you a taste of what went on at Writers a couple of weeks ago. Our guest panelists at this live recording in front of a large uh, room full of patrons and wouldn't you say very well-informed theater goers Roscoe These were smart people smart we, i was intimidated oh, yeah but we did very we very rose well to the occasion our guest on the panel is Stephen Shellhart, associate producer and casting director for Writers Theatre. Also, he's had a very long career as a performer. He's Jeff nominated as an actor, singer, dancer. He's done just about everything you can do on the stage and in the theatre in the professional world. And now uh, is, again, the associate producer and casting director at Writers. Nice guy, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah, he was great. I, I, I loved him, our kind of guy. Well, we began the session with a prepared presentation about Sondheim, which was part of a longer lecture that I gave for the Grand Park Music Festival last July in Millennium Park. This writer's version was peppered with Sondheim trivia questions for the patrons mm-hmm. since we were doing it live, and we offered prizes for the most correct answers. Some of the questions were pretty difficult and obscure, wouldn't you say? We I asked so. questions like, where did Stephen Sondheim go to college? And what was the original title for Follies when Sondheim was working on it before he diverted his attention to company? We're going to give you the answers to these questions at the end of this podcast, but no fair going to Google and finding them now. I want you, our listener, to write these things down and try to guess the answers, and we're going to tell you what they are later on. Um, Also, things like who was the original choreographer? Who was the original Bobby in the show and who replaced him? And 
Who played Bobby on tour? And the who national played tour. Bobby on tour? An Oscar-winning actor who was 12 years older than the character he played. That's a great question. Who replaced Elaine Stritch after she left the Broadway show? This is a fascinating answer and one that uh, had our audience stumped. We're going to bring you about 15 or so minutes of the second half of this live event where we question Stephen Shellhart about Sondheim and the show, where, where patrons were prompted to ask questions, and where we had to come up with a tiebreaker trivia question to determine the winners. It was great fun. We hope you enjoy it. Have a listen. Why company for this inaugural season? Company doesn't really, in terms of a show, does, doesn't have a linear through line. And in terms of a narrative, it's vignettes. Well, you know, Arcadia is built that way yes. in a lot of ways. Yes. But why company? I mean, there's a there's hundred musicals that could have been done to launch this theater. What was the thought behind doing this particular Sondheim show? Bill Brown has wanted to do company, and we love our relationship with Bill Brown. He did a little night music for us here a few years ago, and he is wonderful with Sondheim. And Michael has also, Michael Haberstam has also loved this musical for a while. You know, Sondheim to me is one of the greatest living musical theater geniuses of our time. When I was growing up, Sondheim was someone I held on a very high pedestal for a musical theater actor, and it was like William Shakespeare. His, his lyrics are heightened. The book of this musical is so good. It's so accessible to audiences, I think, in any time. But it, it does feel like it, it's contemporary, but it does feel heightened. The music, Sondheim's music, the melodies, it is heightened language, you know, with, with Tom Stoppard, um, also one of the greatest playwrights. Mm -hmm. Stephen Sondheim seemed like the, the right composer and lyricist to do for a musical. Well, it's, first it, musical it certainly fits with writer's mission. I mean, if you're going to yeah. pick a couple of writers of plays and musicals, you could do worse than Sondheim <laughs> and Stoppard. Well, for and sure. that's another thing. It's an ensemble piece. And when you take the artist and the word and you have an ensemble of 14 actors really taking this text and music, bringing it to life in the way they do, is just remarkable. The set by designer Todd Rosenthal yes. has received some rave reviews. One of the Tony Awards for this show, and none of the actors won Tonys, though several were nominated. One of the Tony Awards was Boris Aronson's um, scene design. Roscoe, uh, in your opinion, this is scene, scenic design that we've seen up here at this, at this theater by Todd. How does that enhance our enjoyment of the show and our understanding of, well, the vague plot lines? Oh, I am such a bad person to ask about set design. <laughs> Are you really? <laughs> and I actually said, it took me a while to get the set. Maybe this says something about me. Uh, but I thought, what is that little thing? And I said, oh, it's an open window. Mm -hmm. It's a half open window. It's a nearly closed window. It's a window of opportunity that's about to shut on Bobby. <laughs> oh, my God. I actually do know what I'm talking yes, about. You do. You sort yes, you do. Yeah. I think yeah. that was the point. I yeah. think and that, God, what a beautiful right. set. Yeah. I mean, Todd the, did the a polished, fantastic The job. polished wood. We're not used to sets this size. <laughs> so it was fantastic for us to have the scope and scale of, of Todd's set. But it really does. It really reflects what's going on in Bobby's life. Sometimes he's trying to open the window and open himself up to relationships, and sometimes he's trying to close it and shut himself off. And is that window half open? Is it half closed? It's looking out into a New York skyline, but it's also looking out into the world. It's looking like he might jump out the window. Well, and you know, there's times I think that he deals with that in the show of, of what 
What do you do when you feel like you are in a prime of your life and you are alone? And that question is raised. Yeah, and, and, and the original set uh, really highlighted that sort of isolated quality, not only of Bobby's life, but of everybody's life living in apartments mm -hmm. in New York City. It was a sort of a tall set with square or rectangular areas where each of the couples had their house. There was even an elevator so that you could get from the top level to the bottom. I think there's a story about Michael Bennett going, Steve, and Stephen, you've got to write me another 16 bars. I can't get Elaine Stritch down in the elevator from the third floor and the music that you wrote. And it was plexiglass and chrome, right? The plexiglass set? and chrome. Very, very wow. sophisticated, shiny, mm -hmm. cold. Um, this set, beautiful, warm wood floor, but it is built with several different kind of curved levels. Yep. And in, in my feeling, it, it helped me understand how the story was moving along um, with Bobby relating to each of the different couples at various times. Some of them took place on the on the floor, mm -hmm. which is, that's the thrust. Others take place on various levels yep. where these people either live or you're standing on their balcony yep. looking out at, I can see the East River from here. <laughs> and, and I thought it worked just just splendidly. Yeah, it, really it does. Great. It's not... It's, it's not specific, which allows us to be very creative in our staging yeah. of it. Stephen Sondheim said that one of his concepts for the show was that he wanted the audience to laugh and then go home and not be able to sleep. <laughs> and this is one of the interesting things. I listened to the album. I, I bought the album, the album, the cassette, the eight track, the CD, <laughs> uh, many different versions over the years. This was the only original cast album that was released in quadraphonic stereo. If you remember quadraphonic stereo that was popular for three months in 1971. <laughs> and I, I listened to the album my whole life, forever, and the album is fun. You know, it's great to listen to while cleaning the house oh, or yes. cooking or whatever it is that I do while listening to show tunes. <laughs> but I forget about the book. You know, this is maybe the, the third time I've seen the show on stage. Like, I think the book is, it's, the book uh, is it's fantastic. a hard, but it's, it's harder. It's mm -hmm. depressing. You know, the, yeah. the, there are moments that are depressing. Yeah. And in towards the end in the scene with Johanna, jo jo Johan, Johan, Joanne. Joanne, yes. Yeah. Um, gets Wrong a little gut-wrenching. Sweeney Todd, thank you. Sweeney, Sweeney Todd. Todd, she has a bonus point. Oh, the lady in the hat, bonus point. Uh, yeah, it is. It is a it is a tough a tough book. It deals with some pretty dark issues, but I think they're all things that we, you know, everyone can relate to, whether you're in a relationship with your significant other, whether you're in a relationship with a friend, and and what is that compromise that you have to make? with those connections you have with people. Yeah, yeah. and I don't want to jump on, maybe you were going to say this, Gary, but I, I thought this was brilliant. Years after he wrote Company, Stephen Sondheim was reading something by Chekhov, um, <laughs> Anton Chekhov, the playwright and story writer, and it was seven words. And the, those seven words were, if you're afraid of loneliness, don't marry. <laughs> and he said, that's what I wanted to say in Company. He said it took us two and a half hours to tell it to say that and Chekhov conveyed that in seven words. <laughs> wow. Do you think the subversive quality of the show from the 1970s? I mean, people actually walked out of that theater going, well, as Ethel Merman <laughs> What said, the hell what? was that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and thinking this this is too dark. 
this is too hard. I don't want to face these truths. This yeah. is not stuff that should be talked about outside of the closed doors of your own home. Do you think that subversive quality has been diminished over time with our changing morals and attitudes towards marriage and commitment? This lady had a wonderful comment about how the the main themes of the show still hold true mm -hmm. and they still have significance for us. But is it a little bit less subversive than uh, in 1970? I think so. I mean, we live in an age where we have apps and uh, cell phones and you can go on, you know, dating sites and you the way we meet people is so different than it it was and relationships are different. And, you know, I, I feel like at a time when it came out, a 35-year-old in 1970 struggling with marriage is a lot different than a 35-year-old in 2016 dealing with marriage. Yeah, they're usually um, living in their parents' basements. Yes, you know, you know <laughs> things have sort of shifted to... Um, people getting married a little older or people deciding not to get married at all. And, and that is okay. And I actually think Bill Brown has done a wonderful job with our production of leaving it open. I, I don't leave our production and think, wow, Bob, you know, some people leave thinking Bobby's never going to have a relationship again. And some people think well, he's going to go run into the arms of the next person that's right for him. And he is now ready. To, and I think that conversation is what makes this musical so wonderful is that there's not a straight answer about it because uh, it's for everyone they can relate to, to, to Bobby in a different aspect. So yeah. those of you who have seen either this production or another production of company ever, how many of you think that Bobby's going to be okay? Oh, dear. How many of you think that Bobby is not going to be okay? He's never going to find the right girl. He's never going to get over his problems with commitments and relationship issues. How many think this is like the darkest story ever? <laughs> and poor, poor, poor Hamlet. About, about the same. We're yeah. about even yeah. on that. Roscoe, I'm going to ask you to come up with one more trivia question Ooh. to see if we can't break this tie. But you, uh -oh. but you have a few moments to do so. I'm going to turn this over to our nice uh, folks in the audience here and see if anybody has any questions for myself or for Stephen Sondheim or Stephen Shellhart. <laughs> yes, sir. I don't have a question. I have a statement. Um, of all the songs, I'm always sorry, I'm always grateful. I think that's the greatest song about relationships. Yeah. That all the, the husbands sing for Bobby? Yeah, me too. It's a beautiful right. song. Um, for those of you who haven't seen the show, it's Sorry Grateful. And it's Bobby asks his male friends, are you ever sorry that you got married? And the, the song is their response to that. But it is one of the most beautiful and um, succinct way of looking at a marriage. Ma'am, do you have a question for us? The set design I thought was brilliant. And maybe... The, but, the, but the window frame is not straight. Right. It's angled. It's on an angle. Well, maybe that just reflects the whole situation. Yep. But I'm curious from your point of view why the set designer put that window on an angle. And it's been bothering me ever since I <laughs> That's a great question. You know, I actually, I, I would love to ask Todd that. But I... From the conversations that I've uh, been a part of, it just seemed, again, like it was another part of Bobby's sort of where he is, where it's everything's a little askew and nothing is clear cut and nothing, there's no answer that's sort of really solid for him. He's struggling. They originally titled it Threes because he really is like the third wheel in all of these scenes and things are happening to him. And I think that's hard as an actor to have the responsibility to carry such a change from the beginning of a show to the end of the show 
without a lot happening to you actively, mm -hmm. you know, throughout, that he really just watches and observes and takes it in. Oh, I'm so glad. And you know, a lot of that is also Jesse Klug, our lighting designer, who is one of the most fantastic lighting designers in the city. Both of them worked so well together. M Madam, you have a question? Yes, I do. Uh, with all of your research and looking into Sondheim, how much of this show is autobiographical? Okay. Uh, Sondheim? <laughs> he always claimed that it wasn't autobiographical. Uh, but he said, he said, I had a, con a problem, a conundrum. I had to write a story about a man who's not married, who's, who, who is struggling with, with getting married or maybe not getting married. And he said, I had never been married. So he turned to his friend, Mary Rogers, who is the daughter of Richard Rogers, who was married. And he said, tell me everything I need to know about marriage. <laughs> and so they spent an afternoon together, and that was his basis for writing the show. According to him, he's he's only ever had one significant relationship in his life that didn't last very long. Mm. Did you have a uh, tiebreaker question for I us? I have a tiebreaker question. Are, are we are we towards the end now? No, we have a couple of hours to get to. We go. have a couple of hours. All right. <laughs> Something else I wanted to throw in. We were talking about updating the show and how things have changed and how we view things differently. There were no lyric changes. You didn't change no, the not. book. You didn't change the lyrics. <laughs> I'm going to squeeze in my favorite anecdote about company. In 1993, during the AIDS crisis, all of the cast members of company, the original production, were still alive. And they did, they did a concert version at Lincoln Center, two performances only, hottest ticket in America. Everyone was still alive. So the original cast gathers, you know the song Barcelona? They wake up in the morning and um, Bobby says, where you going, Barcelona? Oh, don't get up. The woman who sang played the role of the stewardess slash um, flight, attendant. flight attendant. The woman who had sung that role originally had gained some weight in the intervening years. And e Elaine Stritch was known not to hold back. So in the rehearsal, when they got to the point where Bobby says, where are you going? And Elaine Stritch said, Dunkin' Donuts. Oh, gosh. <laughs> are there any more questions for us, by the way? Someone oh, okay, had a hand great. up. Yes, ma'am. About the scene you left out. The scene we left out with um, Peter and Susan. Yes. So in some of the versions of this show, um, there is a little scene that involves um, Bobby and Peter, one of the uh, husbands of the coupling, um, and he asks Bobby if he's ever been with a man. And yes. that, yes, and um, that, you know, we, we ask Bill why that scene wasn't in there, and it wasn't actually in the book version that we are doing. So, uh, so Bill wanted to just stay with the script that we had. And a lot of people, which, when they see Company, they, the, one of the main questions I had when I first saw the production was, well, if Bobby is this good-looking and can't be in a relationship with a woman, is he a gay man? And, and that is up for question two. Oh, many all, people you know? walk out of the show and say, what, what's the whole problem with this play? He's gay. Yeah, uh, no. That's just the answer. That's all Well, and that's what it. some of the critics thought at the time, that's was right. that he's just a closeted homosexual. Yeah, and just, just yeah. dismissed the show as like, they've missed the whole boat. They've missed <laughs> the yeah. point. But, but can you explain that a little? There are different copyright, you know, as, as with many musicals. Follies is mm -hmm. a crazy musical. There's many different versions of that. 
and you have to license a particular version. Yeah. Can you can you explain the legality of that or what you have to do as a theater if you if and we, what how much wiggle room you have with yeah, you mucking know, with the script? It's hard when you when you you license the script of the show that you want to do and then you do start making changes and then there are some versions, you know, like the uh, I think it was was it twenty ten that they did the Neil Patrick Harris um, version. They had a lot of contemporary text in that that was updated that we're not using for this. But if we wanted to use it in ours, then we'd have to go through a whole process of saying, can we change this and then get more, you know, more rights and all that stuff. So it is a, it, there's a lot of legal stuff that goes uh, back and forth with the varying scripts of any musical that are out there. We should probably move on to our tiebreaker question, Roscoe. To our final oh. Jeopardy answer. Yeah. I also I'd found like to limit it to these two people here, this gentleman with the cane in the front row and the nice lady in the blue dress, because they're es essentially tied. Oh, also with the woman in the hat in the back. I l Who wears a hat anymore? Does anyone still wear a hat? And boy, do I love the fact that you're wearing one. You look fantastic. We have, we have, some, we have get two women this, here Let's with get hats. to this question. We have already established that Jane Russell replaced Elaine Stritch. But Jane Russell lasted a year. She was replaced by another icon from the musical theater world. She was famous for one role. She did one role that was a home run, still legendary. People still talk about it. They made a movie version of this landmark musical, and she was able to recreate her role in the movie version. Does it, anybody have a guess based on what he has to say? Carol it's not Gwen Verdon it's not or Carol Gwen Channing. Verdon. Good guesses. Though. But Good. She, she was a one-hit wonder, and if you know musicals, you know who she is. Bonnie Franklin. <laughs> <laughs> no, a little older. The musical was the only <laughs> musical in which Marlon Brando starred. It, Guys and Dolls is the correct answer, and the actress is? Not Gene Simmons. The other one. Vivian Blaine, Yes. And she was famous for playing Adelaide in Guys and Dolls. A poison can develop a cold. That role. So did that break our tire? Did this cause more chaos and confusion? I don't think it broke our tie. So between this gentleman in the front row, uh, our lady uh, in the blue dress, and the lady in the hat, I think you've answered at least two questions correctly, right? All right, I'm thinking of a number between 1 and 20. <laughs> Sir? 8. Ma'am? 17. And Ma'am in the Hat. Ma'am in the Hat. Ma'am in the Hat. <laughs> I'm a writing new, a musical a new tomorrow. Song by Stephen oh my Sondheim. gosh. <laughs> Two. The answer I was thinking of is 12. Eight is closest. Sir, you're the winner. Congratulations. Congratulations. And, and, what do I have for you? I have a $100 <laughs> gift certificate to Guild Hall here in my hand. Wow. And for our second place finisher, I have a lovely uh, parting gift, a, a Booth One mug. Uh, we are Booth One. Please review us on iTunes if you can. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Email us at alist at booth-one.com, and you'll get a free guide to creating your own Booth One experiences by signing up to our mailing list. And, of course, Keep listening, and I'm going to leave you all with this because I know some of you are going to the show. Sondheim has said, musicals are plays, but the last collaborator is your audience. So you've got to wait till the last collaborator comes in before you can complete the collaboration. Those of you going to the show today or those of you going to 
any show, go out there and be collaborators and have a wonderful time at company. Uh, for Booth One, I'm Gary Zabinski. This is Stephen Shellhart. And I'm and, Roscoe. And Roscoe. And I just want to quickly say thank you guys for coming. It's been a pleasure to have you here. If you guys haven't heard Booth One podcast, check them out. They have wonderful podcasts. They have an interview with Michael Haberstam that they did in the fall. That's wonderful. You did a podcast on Death of a Streetcar named Virginia Woolf. We just can't thank you enough. We're Great. thrilled to have you here. And you've been a wonderful audience. Oh, thank, thank you, you. very, very much. Oh. Our thanks to everyone at uh, Writers Theatre who made it possible for us to present such a successful live podcast presentation. Wouldn't you say we had a lot of fun, Roscoe? Oh, yeah, it was terrific. Yeah, especially to Stephen Shellhart and Michael Halberstam, our kind of people, as I said. And we got lots of ideas from the audience members afterwards who were chatting us up. And they wanted to have us for future podcasts and kept throwing out ideas about what we could do. Company has been extended uh, until August 7th. If you're in the Chicago area, I highly recommend getting up to Glencoe to see that. And for the last week, their Joanne is leaving and very famous and well-known Longtime musical theater star here in Chicago, Hollis Resnick, is replacing her in the Joanne role, the Elaine Stritch role. That should be kind of fun. Yeah, she'll be fantastic. We should probably maybe try to get up and see that again. Can we do that? Maybe. Why not? Let's give uh, our listeners uh, the answers to those trivia questions that they were listening to earlier uh, before we did the uh, excerpt. Um, where did Stephen Sondheim go to college? Stevens College. He went to Williams College in Williamsburg, <laughs> Massachusetts. I don't think any of our, our audience members got that one. What was the original title for Follies when he was working on the show? The Girls Upstairs. The Girls Upstairs. And it was going to be a semi-murder mystery. Right. Who was the original choreographer on the show? Michael Bennett. Very good. Who was the original Bobby? Well... Well, who opened the show on Broadway? Dean Jones. Dean Jones. And after a month, he was replaced by Larry Kurt. And this is a bonus question. Who was their original choice to play Bobby when they were first working on the show together? Anthony Perkins. Anthony Perkins of Psycho fame. That had a lot of people gasping yeah. in, the, in our that, audience. Yeah, and that that would have been a horrible show. Right. Why are you not married, Bobby? Because you're creepy and you look like you're <laughs> going to stab me to death. That's why you're not married. Pull down the curtain I, I end think, of the show. I think I said the, the set would have to have been chrome and steel and glass with stuffed heads and birds yes. <laughs> peppered around. Who replaced Elaine Stritch after her... She was a brief Broadway run. How long did she stay with the show? Five I think months? more than six months. Uh-huh. The question was, who replaced her on Broadway? And this also stumped our audience. This was a great question by you. And the answer is? It was Jane Russell, who was then all of 50 years old. But she had not been in a movie in 25 years. I mean, her heyday had been 25 years earlier. You know, 50 is not not old. And it was the one and only, to the best of my knowledge, the one and only appearance role that she ever played on Broadway. Out of nowhere, Jane Russell, suddenly. That would have been thrilling. This last question, who played Bobby on the national tour, also stumped a lot of people. Well, it stumped the entire room, including me. You, you came up with this one, and I, I just could not come up with the I, answer. I can't. George Shakiris. George Chikiris, who, who played Bernardo. Bernardo in the movie of West Side Story. And won an Academy Award and then was never in another substantial movie. But you know what was interesting with, with what became of him? He became a recording star in Italy. He was a big pop star in Italy. They would play his records on the radio. He'd go on tour. 
And you know, nothing ever happened to him in America. Mama Mia! <laughs> yes. I didn't know this. There you go again. Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> now we're really mixing yeah, our I'm metaphors. Sorry. I wanted to let people know that we have been invited to participate in the first annual Chicago Podcast Festival here. Jonathan Pitts, executive director of Chicago Improv Productions and the co-founder of the highly successful Chicago Improv Festival, which has been going on for many years, has teamed up with WBEZ, local radio station here, and The Moth's Tyler Green to produce this first annual Chicago uh, Podcast Festival, debuting November 17th through 19th. I'm just I'm just thrilled by this invitation. We're, we're, we're going to be part of this? We've been invited to be part of it and oh all we gosh. have to do is pick our date and ask them where we can perform. They're going to be doing this at various venues What will we talk about? City. I think we might do a full improv podcast where we ask the audience to give us a couple of suggestions like places and times and then we just kind of do it. Oh my god. You that's, have some improv training. I have some improv training. I think we could be I fantastic. actually studied with the great Del Close who after seeing me in a show on Saturday came to a Monday night class looked at me and said, "Roscoe, I've devoted my life to teaching this art and after I saw your team's performance I thought Maybe I should just commit suicide. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not making that up or exaggerating. We're a little out of time, but I do want to finish our show with our usual kiss of death segment. I think you'll enjoy this one, Roscoe. We're going to talk today about Betsy Bloomingdale. If that name sounds familiar, it should, Bloomingdale. Socialite and friend of influencers. Betsy Bloomingdale, the socialite and renowned fashion leader who was the widow of Alfred S., Bloomingdale, the department store heir, and a celebrated hostess to royalty, world dignitaries, and show business luminaries, uh, died at her home in Los Angeles uh, this week. She was 93 years old. Vivacious, celery thin, with a husky, confiding, Lauren Bacall type voice. Mrs. Bloomingdale was a high octane doyen of the social register whose friendships encompassed presidents and princes, tycoons and leaders of government, entertainment, publishing and the arts. She lived in palatial homes in Los Angeles and New York. She shopped for $20,000 gowns at Paris houses of couture, frolicked with the Kissingers, the Cronkites and Malcolm Forbes on Rupert Murdoch's yacht in Morocco. <laughs> I think that would be quite a thing. Oh, that's, I've been that, in, sorry, that's I can't make one. it. I can't do the recording today, Roscoe. I've been invited to a yacht I'm in Morocco. Yacht. She also attended the royal wedding of Prince Charles and Lady Diana in 1981 and dined regularly with Ronald and Nancy Reagan at the White House in the 80s. In the exclusive Holmby Hill section of Los Angeles, her neighbors over the years were Hollywood legends Barbara Stanwyck, Jack Benny, Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, and... Michael Jackson. That's the neighborhood she lived Whoa. in. She kept diaries. This is fascinating of the dinner parties she had given since the late 1950s, many for charities. And, and she took photographs of table settings to avoid using the same one twice. <gasps> she was perennially on lists of the world's best dressed women. And for decades, she and her husband were trusted friends of the Reagans. With homes a few minutes apart in Los Angeles, they shared soirees and holiday gatherings and family occasions and celebrated a succession of Mr. Reagan's triumphs. When the Reagans moved to the White House, the Bloomingdales took an apartment at the Watergate complex. <laughs> in Washington, Mrs. Bloomingdale was often called the first friend of the first lady. 
Uh, after her husband died in 1982, here's the scandal part of the story. Mrs. Bloomingdale, who was accustomed to seeing her name only in society columns, was drawn into a lurid tabloid scandal when his longtime mistress, Vicki Morgan, sued the Bloomingdale estate and his widow for $10 million for breach of promise. She said that Mr. Bloomingdale, in exchange for her companionship, had promised her lifetime support and a house. In a deposition, Miss Morgan, 37 years his junior, told of a sadomasochistic relationship with Mr. Bloomingdale. His widow acknowledged the affair, but contended that Miss Morgan had been a well-paid prostitute, undeserving of further compensation. A Los Angeles court dismissed most of the suit in 1983. Listen to this. Ms. Morgan was bludgeoned to death in 1983 by another companion who was convicted of the murder. So I guess the sadomasochistic part probably was true. Crazy. Oh. Poor Betsy. Betsy Bloomingdale was born Betty Lee Newling in Beverly Hills uh, on August 2nd in 1922, the daughter of a socially prominent doctor. Growing up, she knew Cary Grant, James Stewart, and Merle Oberon. She briefly aspired to be an actress uh, before becoming, in 1946, Mr. Bloomingdale's second wife. Her book was called Entertaining with Betsy Bloomingdale. <laughs> <laughs> From 1994, it offered advice to aspiring hostesses. Mrs. Bloomingdale, who usually took two trips a year to Europe to buy designer gowns, donated a large collection of her couture to the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising in Los Angeles. Sixty of her outfits from Givenchy, Oscar de la Renta, Chanel, Dior, Valentino and Yves Saint Laurent were exhibited in 2009. In 1996, she had a fashion epiphany in Paris. She left a Valentino show without placing an order. Scandal. Walked into a boutique on the Avenue Montaigne and bought a ready-to-wear Valentino gown. I thought, I like that, and I like that. I can buy three of those for the price of one haute couture gown. That's when I started to wear ready to wear. <laughs> wow. Betsy Bloomingdale, socialite and friend of influencers. Review us on iTunes, uh, listeners, if you can. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, email us at alist at booth-one.com and you'll get a free guide to creating your own Booth One experiences uh, for signing up to our mailing list. And of course, keep listening. Thank you for being at large today, Roscoe. For Thank booth- you for being my friend. <laughs> For Booth One, this is Gary Zabinski. And I'm Roscoe. Saying so long until next time. Off the deer soon.